All right. Simmer down. You're doing great. Timothy, thank you for the delicious pound cake, or pound cake, is that what I call that? It was amazing, fantastic, super delicious. Uh, okay, Shh. welcome back. We're glad you're here. We've had a little bit of a break. Um, if you're, if you're kind of jumping back in in January, what we do here is this, uh, every week we're looking at a different book of the New Testament, giving you one chat or one like hour-long, one-page summaries of every book in the New Testament. And today we're going to do Titus. If you didn't get a copy of this, then Bob Blecksmith in the blue sweater is your guy. and He'll hook you up. So Bob will get you one of these. You're going to want to have that to follow along. But before we do, this class is sponsored by Financial Peace University. And so, we're going to begin with a quick word from our sponsor. David, you mind kicking us off, bro? Well, Diane, come on up too. Good morning. I'm David Edelstein. It's my wife, Diane, and we've been teaching at Financial Peace University. Louder. Put in your mouth. We've been teaching at Financial Peace University class. This is the third time in the last year. So, um, we But just not wanted... really, right? This is like your... Well, we've How been doing times? this for 20 years. Yeah, long time. Yeah. Right. So... Third time here. Uh, briefly, I just wanted to tell you that, um, yes, dear, <laughs> there's uh, some information on your table there about the class. It starts on January 17th at 6 o'clock in the library right here. This QR code leads you right to the sign-up sheet and everything. It tells you about the nine uh, classes that, are, that we're going to be doing, and they're an hour and a half each, each evening, and there's child care available. So there's more information in Northex on the table out there. So I'm going to stop talking because the more important people are John and Leanne Elder who have taken the class, and we want to hear from them what Financial Peace University has done for them. Thanks, David. Hey, everybody. We just finished Financial Peace University, so now we're financial experts. and um, Yeah, it's a really good class. So if you're like me, didn't grow up with a clear plan for what to do with money or why, and I always felt kind of a sense of shame and fear around money because I just didn't know what to do with it. I didn't know what savvy people did. Um, it turns out that it's pretty straightforward. Um, Financial Peace University makes it pretty easy to understand what God says about money in the Bible. So um, they, they pull from Proverbs and from the Gospels and give you principles by which to make decisions with your money, and then a set of very short, very simple priorities for what to do. So first you do this, and then this, and here's exactly how. Um, and so that really just kind of scrubbed away a lot of the fear that I had about what to do with money, when, and how. Um, and then the second benefit that it offers is uh, relational. So it forces you and your spouse, or maybe even your future spouse, to get on the same page about money and to make decisions together. And since that's the main resource that flows through your hands, you know, it kind of shapes your life and it brings you together in a really cool way. Um, plus, it's just really fun and they have childcare. So, um, <laughs> just, yeah, endless, endless reasons to check it out. Um, even if you're good with money, there's, there's also, um, you know, things you can pick up and you can, you can pass along some of your knowledge to other people too. So, there's really no reason not to be interested in to check it out. Recommend it. All right. Strongly, strongly recommend that you, you jump in and take, take part in that. This is so incredibly helpful. So as I said, we're going to be, thank you so much, we're going to be looking at the book of Titus today. 
And Titus is a little bit funny in this class because there's kind of this weird double set. Number one, the reason that we are looking at every book in the New Testament in one hour, in one, you know, kind of one document, is because I taught Titus like this in the other room. So I don't know when it was, a year ago or something, we did, I did a sermon on Titus. Do you guys remember that? Okay, so I did do it over there, and so you're like, didn't we already do this? And the answer is, well, some of us did this over there, but I, I, we didn't do it in here. And I didn't want to have this be like, hey, here's 26 of the 27 books of the New Testament, blah, 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 blah. I wanted to finish the set. So for some of you, this will be new, and that's fantastic, and maybe you'll learn something and be glad to learn it. For others of you, this will be review, and review helps us to learn, and that's still fantastic. And for others of you, you're like, I got up early for this. Are you kidding me? And that's fine. Sorry. That's what it is. So we're doing Titus. Um, and then I think next week we're going to do Mark's Gospel, and we're, we're getting close. We really don't have that many books left to go, okay? So we'll usually begin each kind of lesson looking at a book with asking you, like, what do you remember about Titus? And when I ask you that in about 30 seconds, it might be that you just steal all my stuff. And that's fine. That's great. I'd love to hear it. If you guys, if you guys can teach this class, then please do. So... What do you know about Titus? Christ is our Savior. Christ is our Savior. Okay, and what, what about, that is a completely true statement, and it's absolutely grounded in Titus, but can you expand on that a little bit? Uh, his emphasis on Christ not just being um, our you know, Messiah, the promised King of Israel, but also just being like he is our salvation. We need, we need. Yes. So, yes, very, very strong focus throughout the letter. Paul, Paul only calls Jesus Savior 12 times in all of his writings. Do you like the book Titus? Don't you, though? Rachel had a son named Titus. Uh, uh, the, uh, Paul, call, or, yeah, Paul calls Jesus Savior 12 times in all of his books. Half of those usages are right here in Titus. It is a very strong very disproportionate focus on Christ as Savior. So very important. We'll see more about that as we go. What else do you guys know about the book of Titus? Anything? I think you said last time something about that uh, Titus was trying, Paul was telling Titus to follow Jesus because of loving him as seeing the beauty of him. Yes. Okay. So I think so what Bob is talking about, so when Paul, so Titus has been sent, some would say that he is the pastor at Crete. Some believe he's not really the pastor at Crete, but he was kind of sent as like an apostolic ambassador to the church at Crete to clean things up. But whatever it is, Crete's a train wreck, okay? Crete's a mess. Crete is, it's kind of like Corinth was a mess. Vegas is a mess. Salem's a train wreck. It's like that, okay? So was that, was that a little, okay. So Crete's, a, Crete's an ugly, bad place, and they've planted a church in Crete. And what Paul is really telling Titus is, listen, if the gospel is going to sing, if people's lives are going to be changed in Crete, you guys just need to be on point. You need to live lives of such radical love, such joyful obedience. There just needs to be such a goodness. And good is a major word in the book of Titus. You need to be so good that people that are chasing all these other worthless things come crowding in to say, okay, what do you know? What do you know that we don't know? It's going to be the it's going to be the sparkling beauty of the goodness of your lives that really draws people in. That's a major theme. We'll put that together too. There was a male voice somewhere behind Bob, but I didn't look up to see who was saying it. Who was it? Yeah, bro. Eric, what you got? I, I was just going to say, I think 
just going to say it's short, but it's powerful, so it's, you can jump right into it and go through it and spend some time in it. It is. It's a tiny little book. Gil and I were just talking. It's only it's three chapters. It's the shortest of Paul's epistles, if you don't count Philemon, which is its own little special thing. But it's tight, right? And I love this book. Titus is, when I, when I was preaching out the other, you know, whatever, year ago, I mentioned that this was the book, for whatever reason, I just decided to study right when I graduated from college. And so I did a really deep dive on Titus, maybe because it was so short. And it's full of treasures. And we're going to try to unpack those things today. Okay, one or two more observations before we start organizing it all. Titus? I, just died. I think I got from you motivation before methodology. Gospel leads to godliness and impacts behavior. Okay, so what Bob is saying, and this is the pattern we see through lots of Paul's letters, is that you, could, you can divide up all of the epistle content. It's, really just, it's not even just the letters. The letters are reflecting reality. That there's things we need to know and there's things that we do because of what we know, right? There are things in the, in the gospel, or in, in really in Paul's letters that are what we would say the um, in Indicatives, meaning I'm indicating this is so, and then the imperatives, meaning you got to go do this. There's doctrine and there's application. We're, we want to be both orthodox, we believe right things, and orthoprax, we do right things. And all of the orthopraxy, all of the application, all of the doing is rooted and grounded in a deep understanding of what's already true. And so we want to find in all these books, we want to know, okay, what is true? What am I supposed to believe and know and embrace and delight in? And then... What do I do about it? How does it matter? How does it shape the way that I live my life? And so Titus is, like most of Paul's works, is full of that. Very, very good. Okay, now let's take a look. You might remember this um, when we looked at this. If you look at Titus, he does something strange. Paul does something strange in Titus 1.4 that might or might not jump out at you. If you were here when we talked about this, you might remember it. But if not, um, this is a peculiar thing. Okay, look at Titus 1.4. He sins. As he opens up his letter, he says, To Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Now, if you're just a normal person and you're reading Titus 1.4 and it says, Grace and peace to you from, how does he say it? Grace and peace to you from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. That probably wouldn't catch your attention. There's nothing unusual or strange or bizarre about that. It's just blah, 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 okay? But if you're not a normal person because you're habituated to be in the Scriptures and you're really familiar with Paul's letters, then that thing will pop to you, okay? Because this is how Paul begins all of his letters, okay? I actually put it on the document for you. Just listen to the pattern. If Paul's writing you a letter, it's going to start like this. Grace and peace to you from God our Father, And from the Lord Jesus Christ. That's Romans. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's 1 Corinthians. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's 2 Corinthians. I can do Galatians without looking. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Second, Are you tired of this yet? How does Paul begin his letters? That's right. How does he begin Titus? Grace and peace to you. Oh, we've already jacked it up. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Okay, now remember when Chris said that this letter has a strong focus on Savior? It starts right here. If you're reading through Titus and you're minding your own business, well, do you know know the phenomena that like, 
Are, did some of you get raised reading like the New International Version of the Bible, and then some Yahoo asks you to read the ESV in front of like 500 people, and it's like you can't read anymore? Do you have this phenomenon? Every Sunday that I'm the gospel reader and I've got to read the ESV, I have to like look at each word, and I feel like I'm functionally illiterate because as I'm reading it, like what's happening in my head is like the NIV is coursing through my brain, and I've got to like, and I just always feel like I look such a moron when I'm doing this, okay? That's what happens when you come to Titus. You're like, I know what you're about to say. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and Lord. Oh, wait a minute, what? And it's different, okay? When I saw that, that he says, he calls Jesus Savior instead of Lord, I began to look at the letter. And what I saw was so shocking to me, okay? I did a search. Paul uses the word Lord in reference to Jesus Christ. Does anybody happen to remember the number? It's 257 times. In every single one of his letters, his most common title for Christ is Lord. When he calls him Lord, what he means is king. We have a tendency to think that Lord is a polite way to say God, okay? That's not what Paul means. What he means is king. He means reigner, ruler, curios, because Jesus has become king. He is the king of the world, and that's a big deal. And so, Paul constantly ascribes to Christ the title of king, of Lord. But he does not do it one time in the book of Titus. He calls Jesus Lord 257 times, all totaled, including at least a half a dozen times in every letter. Philemon, which we saw two weeks ago, which is like this long, he calls Jesus, go count him, he calls Jesus Lord six times in Philemon because he is the king. He's the king, he's the king, he's the king, he's the king. He is king, he reigns over all things. He went to the lowest place. And so he was exalted to the highest place. And Paul endlessly sings the praises of Christ as king. But never once does he do it in Titus. It is the dog who forgot to bark, if you know the, the, not Shakespeare, the Sherlock Holmes kind of framing of things. It's a very conspicuous absence. Why doesn't he call Jesus Lord? So if you make it to verse 4, Titus 1, 4, you should ponder, be like, okay, what's up with the Savior thing? Why, why, I mean, he is Savior, so that's fine. It maybe shouldn't bother you. But it might, you might think, that's just weird when somebody breaks such a deep set pattern. And then if you go further and realize, wow, it's not just there in 1-4, but it's nowhere in all of the book. Is there any trace of it? Now, somebody in this room might be, possibly, looking at your Bible right now, and you're like, no, but it says Lord right here. Is any, anybody looking at a King James version of the Bible? Do you have King James? If you're looking at a King James Version, you will find that in the King James Version, he does call Jesus Lord. But they were making that up, okay? It's not there in the Greek. And in fact, their error only makes my point. They were just used to it. They're just a bit, he probably meant it. He always did. And so they added, like, oh, gosh, don't do that. Just take it, take it straight. So really, I promise you, if you read the, the Greek manuscripts for this, it does, there is no curious. There is no Lord. He's intentionally avoiding it. Okay? And then, in contrast to that, he calls him Savior. And if you go through, again, if you go through Paul's letters, he only calls Jesus, he calls Jesus Lord 257 times. And he only calls him Savior a dozen times. Much, much, much less. And half of those are in this book. Okay. Yep. Rachel. Oh, great question. That's a great question. So Rachel is Rachel's doing some higher criticism on the text, and she's she's affirming 
that she's not questioning, did Paul write Titus? He, he did write Titus. But she's saying that the people think that maybe he didn't write Titus. Because what we're trying to tend to do is if, if everybody has, you know, you know, it's always embarrassing when it gets pointed out to you. But we all have like idiosyncratic communication terms. Like maybe a phrase that you use way more often than somebody else uses. Or just different things in your language. So we'll, we'll kind of apply this grid to Paul's letters and say, did he really write... Or did Peter really write? Because this just doesn't seem the vocabulary that he's most likely to use, right? And so that we, we can do that. I'm, I'm not familiar. Uh, okay, so I, I should be honest with you. I don't have like in my brain like an instant Rolodex of where the, where the more liberal scholars tend to get chippy. But I don't remember ever reading about the authorship of Titus being questioned on this. I do think this is very unique in Paul's writings. But... I don't think there's any charge that it's otherwise inconsistent with the way that he communicates or with the message that he conveys. So, but I will go look that up. That's a really interesting question. But I don't, I don't think so. But I'll, I'll look. And if I see anything, I'll let you know about that. Okay. So, why the focus on Lord? I'm sorry. Why the focus on Savior and the avoidance of a focus on Lord? What would explain that? You guys, wanna, you guys have any theories on why would Paul be doing that? Yeah, Eric? Oh, look at you, okay? Bless your heart. So we've said this many times, that the, uh, the, the letters of the New Testament, the part of the genre of epistle or the genre of letter, is that they are, we, I keep using the same word for you, we call them occasional, okay? Remember this? That the letters are occasional. I don't mean from that that they're periodic, I don't mean that they are intermittent. I mean they are responses to a specific occasion. They're not mere initiation. They're actually a response to, hey, there's something going on here. I got to write you for a letter. And that letter is going to, you know what it's going to be about because you know this message. Okay. So there's an occasion. There's something going on here, and I'm going to write into that letter. There's something going on in Crete. Something is happening in Crete that Paul's got to be like, hey, 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 let's get one thing straight. Jesus is the Savior, and I'm going to talk about that incessantly, even to the exclusion of talking about his lordship, okay? So then the question becomes, what was going on in Crete? Why in this letter is he so unique and so particular, okay? So now, let's keep going into the letter, and here's what you're going to find. If you want to really understand what's going on in Crete, reading the New Testament is a bit of um, kind of reverse engineering. What you're essentially seeing is a solution, and then you've got to figure out what's the problem that this is a solution to. Why is Paul using these themes? Why is this his message? What might, what, if this is the plug, or this is the, I don't know, how do you call it? Is this the plug or this is the outlet? If this is the plug, what was the outlet it was designed to fit into? Like, what was going on here? Okay, so here's a really important clue. If you go to Titus, if you flip over to the back of your page, you will find this. And let me just read to you this very strong recurrence, Okay. Rather, he's talking about what must be true of elders, the leaders of a church. Rather, he, the elder, must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who's self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. And then he describes others who are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Likewise, later on he's going to give instructions to older men, younger men, older women, younger women, and he says, teach the older women to be reverent in the way that they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Later, and everything set them an example by doing what is good. 
in your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, soundness of speech. And he's going to say that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. And then finally, in 3.14, our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order that they may provide for daily necessities and not live unproductive lives. Okay? That is the theme of the book. Do it, you hear it, right? Do what is good. 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 Now, we already said a little bit. Why do they have to do what is good? Well, it's because they live in Crete. Because Crete's a mess. And because it's very much like when Jesus says to his, to his disciples, you don't light a lamp and then put a bucket over it, right? You let your light shine before men so they may see your good deeds and glorify God who is in heaven. What he's saying is, you guys, in a place like Crete where everybody's just snarling and lying and stealing from each other and disadvantaging one another, considering their needs is more important than the needs of others, in this place, if you will just flip all of those things upside down, the gospel will shine. If you want to transform this island, do what is good. Do what is good. Do what is good. Okay? You with me? Now, Here's the problem. A person less wise than Paul, a person less soaked in the beauty of the gospel, that wanted to get everybody to tighten up. If you had the choice to focus on Christ as Lord or on Savior, which, which lever would be the most tempting to pull? Isn't it Lord? Right? Do you just want to say, hey, 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 knock it off. Right? Because he's got a big stick and he's the king, I tell you. So bend the knee. Obey. Jesus is Lord. He is Lord. He is Lord. He is Lord. So knock it off. Do you get that? Okay. There's something really tempting about that. And has anybody ever pulled that with your children? <laughs> just wait till your father gets home, right? You know this story. Is, 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 that, is that line, just wait till your father gets home? Is that because. He is so gracious and patient and loving and kind. Is that what we mean when we say that? Okay, there's this impulse there. And Paul completely subdues that. And it's not, hey, 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 tighten up. Instead, it is he is the Savior, the Savior, the Savior. Why does Paul choose? Why does he make that very unconventional choice? What's going on there? Catherine? Catherine is exactly right. We, people like us, maybe there's somebody somewhere, but people like us, we're not that different from the people of Crete. People like us, we cannot do what is good, do what is good, do what is good, unless we are so steeped in the reality of his unconditional love, his endless flowing grace, the mercy of God. It is because, and I would suggest only because he is the Savior that we have any hope of becoming what he wants us to be.
All right. Well, Paul says, take a look at what he does here in 2. Um, I, I put it here, the thesis of Titus in 2.11, but maybe don't look at my sheet. Go to your actual Bible, because I might want you to have a little bit more context here. If you look at 2, we'll, we'll be at 2.11, but just see what's going on here. He's been telling, this is what older women do, and old, younger women, older men, younger men, all these things, what, what slaves do. I mean, it's just very applicable. And then he says this. Look at verse 2, uh, 2.11. He says, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. What is the antecedent to the pronoun it? Grace of God. Grace. What teaches us to say no to ungodliness? Strong, ferocious people with large, pointy sticks. Right? No, that is, his point is not, it is the force and power and threat of punishment teaches us to say no to ungodly. No, he says, the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people, and it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing Oh, hang on, this is happening right now. This is new NIV. I can't read that. It's ridiculous. Okay. While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. What this suggests is that when you find yourself tangled up in some besetting sin for the same, you know, same thing for the last 500 times and you surrender to it, Okay? When you are in that part of the, the sign curve, right, your whole life, your, the rest of your life, and I'm so sorry, but the rest of your life will be one of sin and repentance, sin and repentance, sin and repentance. You will always struggle with sin, but you don't have to surrender to it, right? You, you, you could be sin, uh, just live around here, repentance, sin, repentance, or you can be like, Sin and repentance, and I'm living in it, and I sin and repentance, right? That's just the shape of our life, what is this curve. And what Paul is saying is that when you find yourself on the bottom of the curve, and you're like, ah, what's going on? What, what's, what's happening? You're like, what's wrong with me? Why am I here? Answer is, you've forgotten something about his grace. Because his grace, te- that's the thing that teaches us to say no to ungodly. He's like, why am I so wrapped up in this thing that I'm doing? Why am I such a jerk to my sister? Why am I back looking at all this stuff online that I shouldn't be looking at? Why am I so committed to like gossiping and making myself look good? What is going on here? Like, why am I, I hate this thing about me. Why am I there? Answer, because you've forgotten something about his grace. That you, like this, the reality, the richness that his grace, which teaches us to say no to ungodliness, and worldly passions, to live self-controlled and upright and godly lives in this present age while we're waiting for future grace, something has short-circuited that. And so, it's being short-circuited at Crete. And so Paul says, hey, if we want these people to live good lives, what it's imperative that you do all day, every day, Titus, teach the grace of Christ. Remind them of his beauty. Convince them that he is endlessly for them that he loves them despite their failures, that he will pick them up when they fall. Let, show them the cross. Show them his beauty. Show them his mercy, his love. That even this, this is a this is this funny thing. Isaiah 28 has this really curious line. God is a lot of things, okay? He is, 
he is, we have, I've often said a million times in this room, he is a lamb-like lion, he's a lion-like lamb. There's enormous stretch. Edwards talks about the admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies. He's incredibly ferocious. He's unimaginably gentle. He's exalted above the heavens, and he is incredibly lowly. And one of those weirdnesses, one of those stretchy things, is that he is merciful, 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 and he is just and holy and wrathful, okay? But, this is really important, we could tend to think that in that stretch, it's a tie. He is equally wrathful as he is merciful. But did you know that's not true? He is. All that he is at all times. But Isaiah 28 describes his wrath as his, and I quote, his strange work. His foreign work. When you describe, when we ask, hey, what do you like? He says, I'm the Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. His basic nature, his default mode of being is to be gracious. And yes, he is also holy and just and wrathful, but that is his strange work. His nature is to be kind to undeserving people. You with me? And what we must do, that what, what Paul is saying in the book of Titus is, you guys, if we're going to clean up Crete, we've got to endlessly talk about his mercy and his grace, that he is the Savior, the Savior, the Savior, the Savior, who is an ever-flowing cataract of love and mercy to undeserving people. Talk about that incessantly, and they'll clean up their acts automatically. That's, what, that's, the, that's the lesson of the book of Titus. Judy? great. Such a great question. Okay, so let's, so let's do this. So let's talk a little bit about not Titus, okay? Because every time that I'm saying you, isn't it magnificent that he never talks about Jesus as Lord, but he always talks about his Savior, you're like, well, what about the other books? Like, are those like scary bad? And the answer is no. But when, when, when Paul talks about Christ as Lord, generally, right, the other 257 times, he never does so with any embarrassment, right? It's never like, hey, bad news, Jesus is king. It's always magnificent news because he's such a good king, because he is a gracious king, because he's a king who died for his people, because he's a king who reigns in righteousness with wisdom. He is a magnificent king, and we never need to be embarrassed that he is. But there are contexts in which you know you're more likely to be misunderstood, right? So, for instance, if I were in a group, I'm just making this up as I go, so God forgive me if I blow this, but like there might be an environment where we could talk about Jesus being a husband to the church. We are his bride and he is our husband. But if I was talking to somebody who had a really negative experience with their husband or they grew up watching the way their dad treated their mom and for them, like, husband takes on a sense of, like, ooh, yuck, I don't, I don't like that. Then I might not, like, hemorrhage on the husbandiness of Jesus. Because it might just be, like, it's a message that they wouldn't be capable of hearing. 
Does, does this make sense? So there are times and there's context where we use different language, different, and, this, and, and so the Bible gives us this very rich kind of vocabulary of the way that he relates to us. And sometimes we might talk about Christ or, well, God as husband or, or God as father or God as the owner, as the master, right? The master of slaves. Paul calls himself a slave all the time. And so in different moments, in different environments, different language lands differently with different people. So it seems to me that there's something going on here in the island of Crete that it's like, hey, we've got to avoid that, focus on this in this particular place. Uh, and so, and even throughout the history of the church, there are certain people for whom Christ as king is a bridge too far, or it's a bridge that carries certain implications that are unhelpful. Um, he is the king, and we don't need to be embarrassed about it, but we should be thoughtful and sensitive about communicating in ways that is going to most effectively convey the beauty and sweetness and goodness of all that he is. Does that make sense? Okay. All right. Catherine. Okay. For me, the concept of grace has been a lot harder to comprehend, I guess, or internalize than love. And so sometimes grace can just, sometimes it just seems, kind of, I'm not sure what that means, but he still loves me. He loves me. That's more... My personal savior, because I need that. I mean, I sin all the time, so I need. And I, I went to a women's retreat one time. The whole weekend was we've forgotten he loved us. We've forgotten about his love. Yeah. What does that mean? Yeah. Well, I would say yes, for sure. And I think, and of course, both both are completely accurate. And it make it would make sense that at certain times. His love might kind of jiggle the lock in a different way than his grace. The way that I think of the relationship between grace and love is that grace is what love looks like when it encounters the undeserving. Okay? So I love God more or less, right? I mean, so I'm not, this is, I mean, he is ultimately lovely. He's incredibly lovely. And I do love him. And there's a lot of other stuff that gets in the way. But when my, I, I show God no grace because he's, he's deserving of my love, right? So when we love a deserving thing, that's just love. But when love encounters something that doesn't deserve it at all, it converts into grace. Does this help? Does this make sense? Yeah. Um, to me, um, when, you, when you really start to internalize grace, it creates a compulsion in you to do good. Yes. I, to me, that's only the Holy Spirit. Because within ourselves, we will not do good. Yes, and that, that's exactly right. So when we encounter grace, it produces a compulsion to do good. That's exactly Titus 2.11, right? The grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodly. So it is just, it's literally like it's this, as I'm living in his grace, then I automatically want to be like that. And when I find that I'm not, then you're like, well, what's the matter? Like something's, you stepped out. You're no longer living in a state of consciousness of the endless cataract of mercy that flows towards you. That's exactly right. Robin? Yes, so Robin's saying, isn't there a place where we don't use the grace of God as an excuse to keep on sinning? I'd say probably Romans 6 might be like the strongest and most obvious place of that, where Paul asked the question, shall we continue to sin so that grace may abound? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? So yes, so grace is not supposed to teach us, hey, good news, 
Jan, you can get away with it. Just go, you know, it's not supposed to do that. It's supposed to say, if I'm experiencing real grace, then it should flow itself out in this way. But a lot of stuff gets messed up, right? And so when we, are, when we turn grace into license, what that means is we're not really understanding it as grace. We, are, we have somehow thought that I didn't really deserve to get caught anyway, and it has no power to actually transform our hearts. Okay, we're almost done. Here's what I want to show you. So two more things very quickly. Gospel according to Titus. We will often go to uh, Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. For, for by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, the gift of God, all that. That whole Ephesians 2 passage is beautiful, and it has a twin, and it's in Titus 3. So Quig is actually very fond of Titus 3. I've heard him preach on it several times. If you go look and you look at Ephesians 2 and then you read um, uh, Titus 3, this would be one of those things textually that you're like, okay, this is so Pauline, it's not even funny, okay? So just listen to it. Here's, Here's Paul in Titus 3. He says, at one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Do you hear the Ephesians 2 of that? It's the same phrasing, same thing. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal through the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that having been justified by his grace... We might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. That is a beautiful, very pithy, very tight Ephesians 2-ish kind of statement. And then two more things. I'll just just throw these down here. Qualifications for elders. This is one of the books. This is what we call a pastoral epistle. 1 Timothy and Titus are the primary places. We looked at 1 Timothy maybe a month ago or so. For primary two places, we find out what must be true of the leaders of the church, for elders and for deacons, also for overseers. Where, what, what must that look like? That's all... Oh, there's a typo. I hate it when I see typos. Okay, so there's a typo on that second column. Um, but then notice this. I think this is really funny. Instructions for various groups. As I told you, it's older men, younger men, older women, younger women. Look at what he does. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Okay, there's like six or seven things. For the older women, they need to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers, not to be addicted to much wine, also to teach what is good. And then they teach the younger women. This is, the world is so desperately in need of Titus II women. They'd be like, you know, I'm going to, I'm 40 years old, I'm 50 years old, I'm 60 years old, I'm going to tell these 20-year-olds how to do it, right? The world needs Titus II women who will teach the younger women to love their husbands and children. We are difficult things to love, so they need help. Be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. And then when he gets to the young men, look at the list. (laughs) Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. And we'll call it a day, okay? Like, if you can pull that off, we're like, good enough, happy go, okay? So be gracious to the young men in your lives. They have a lot they're dealing with, okay? All right. That's Titus. You got it? Go back, read a watch for these things. They're so full of good, good insights. And I think we'll look at Mark next week. That's all we got. Gave out most of those. <laughs>